So Romans chapter 8, please, verse 29. Many of you know verse 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But now look at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Notice there that it goes from eternity past to eternity future, and that the end there is glory, the glorification of the saints, or the perseverance of the saints. Now look in the hymnal, page 929, chapter 17, of the perseverance of the saints, section 1. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Section number two, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability. See, there's that word again, boys and girls. You all remember that from this morning, right? Just nod your head yes. Yes, pastor, we do. Immutability but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. And then finally, section three, nevertheless, they may, through temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect, there's that laziness we talked about this morning, and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measures of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. So we're going to talk about those three sections here, but I want to begin by having us consider the Scriptures, and then we'll look at these sections, and we may go back and forth. Now, first of all, as we talk about the subject of perseverance, we want to consider the fact that perseverance, to put it simply, boys and girls, for the youngest of our members to understand, is we persevere because God is gracious and sovereign. God is the one who gives us His grace in order to continue to walk with Him. It's all of God, and we see that it's all of God in our text tonight. That's why we chose Romans chapter 8, verse 29. So notice here that, again, uh, God works everything or all things together for the good of those who love God. Now, how can God cause this war in Israel to work to your, for your good? How can God work 
what's going on in our country with all its animosity and divisions for your good. How can God allow our government to build up all this uh, debt beyond our limits uh, for your good? How can you go through the things you go through personally, familiarly? Uh, well, it's because God is sovereign over those things, and God is never the author of evil, but God does see to it that he ordains everything for the growth in grace and perseverance of his people. God is able, through his sovereignty and his infinite wisdom, he is able to dictate all the details of your life that everything works ultimately for your future glorification, for your perseverance. And you see this because when you come to verse 29, Paul gives us what sometimes in our commentaries is called the golden chain of salvation. You'll notice in verse 29 that he begins, for uh, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image. Now, what is God's purpose? Well, ultimately, you know, God's purpose is uh, for his own glory and for the glorification of his people, for your well-being. And God introduces his eternal counsel to show that everything is ultimately for your good. The design of God's purpose is twofold. One, ultimately, it is for the preeminence of Christ and of God himself. Penultimately, that means second to the ultimate, penultimately, the purpose of God is, is conformity to Christ among his people. God is redeeming for himself an eternally holy and Christ-like people to be citizens of his divine kingdom for eternity, to be children of his divine family. We are to be conformed as the family of God. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 5, Paul writes the following, for we Excuse me, for if we have become united with Christ in the likeness of his death, certainly shall also we be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you hear what he's saying? That if we who believe on Christ are united to Jesus in Jesus' death on the cross, you also will be like him in glory. That is, you will persevere because you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, that God who began a good work, will complete it until the day of redemption. Um, Lincoln Duncan, who um, is today president uh, or chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, all its campuses, um, says this. <clears throat> he says, Into the likeness of Jesus Christ does not mean that we participate in the essence of the Trinity, but that God makes us morally to be like his son. He makes us holy. He sanctifies us. We love what Jesus loves. We come to hate what Jesus hates. We begin to live like him, love like him, care like him. And he, he says that in his sermon back when he was a minister at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. <clears throat> We also are going to share in his glory. Christ was raised from the dead and ascended, and he reigns in glory, says Ligon Duncan. We will be resurrected, and we will ascend, and we will reign in glory 
in the new heavens and in the new earth. So Christ is going to see to it that his people do persevere. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read this from the Apostle Paul. And he is the image of the invisible God, that is Jesus, is the express image, boys and girls, of God, the Father in the flesh. That is, that uh, everything that Jesus says, that's what God the Father would have said. Uh, everything that Jesus does, that's exactly what God the Father would have him to do. He is the image of the invisible God. But then it goes on to say that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that firstborn mean? Now, it does not mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses who come knocking on your door says it means. Jehovah's Witness will point to a verse like this one and they'll say, see, Jesus was created by God. Jesus is not the eternal son of God, they'll tell you. He was created by God. He was the first act. I'm telling you something that is not true, boys and girls. I'm telling you something that Jehovah's Witnesses, which is a cult, will tell you or say to you if they come to your home, if they come and, and knock on your door. What does this mean then? We have to say, okay, if it doesn't mean what the Jehovah's Witness is saying, what does the firstborn of all creation mean? And it, it, it means that Christ essentially is the head of all and that we are his body. We, he uh, was raised, and if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he was the first fruit, um, that he was raised from the dead in glory. And we likewise will follow in that. We, we will be resurrected and raised with Christ. But Christ, the first fruit, Christ is the firstborn, means he has the preeminence among us. We, you are his younger brothers and sisters, okay, in Christ. But Christ is the firstborn. He has preeminence over us all. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says that he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Now, <clears throat> let's look at our confession together here. Because in chapter 17, section 1, what do we read? We read that the Westminster Divines say, They, whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. What is it that the Westminster Divines are emphasizing here? They are saying that those who believe in Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of creation, who is the express image of God the Father to us, we are united to him by faith, but that faith is given to us because of God's grace, because we were effectually called. We were sanctified by his spirit. That is, God does the work of grace in us that causes us to believe in Christ and to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that perseverance is not ultimately up to us. Now, we have a responsibility before the Lord in persevering, but the ground of our perseverance is in what? It's in the decrees of God. It's in God's election. It's in God's effectual call. 
And this is, this is what we see in verse 29. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To, to persevere, to be conformed to the image of his son. You have been predestined to persevere. You, you have been called effectually for the purpose of persevering to glory. Those who are genuinely and effectually called by the Spirit cannot fall short of glory. It's impossible. Those who have been chosen of God in Jesus Christ cannot but go to glory. Uh, it is impossible to be chosen by God and not end up in heaven. And so Paul is in Romans trying to impress us with the enormity of God's purpose and plan in our salvation. And that's why he says later in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or to put it another way, if God is for you, who can fall away? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. In the light of everything that God has done for us and continues to do for us, nothing will ultimately cause you to fall away from the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it about God's purposes that can lead the apostle to assert that nothing can ultimately do you any harm? And I think it is because Paul reflects on the vastness and the greatness and the enormity of God's involvement in the care of his church, in the care of his individual people. That brings the apostle to that conclusion. That is, the purposes of God stretch from eternity past to eternity future. They originate in eternity past. For those whom he foreknew. Now, this foreknowledge, as we've said many times from this pulpit, is a forelove. A God foreloved us. That's what we understand this foreknowledge to be. Um, God's foreknowledge and predestination of his people, they will continue, therefore, in history with the sovereign calling of God on their life, the justification of them, uh, and then ultimately the glorification and likeness to Christ. There, there is controversy over this word foreknew, I know. Uh, you, you've heard it here. Foreknow, sometimes, to add to the controversy or the confusion, can sometimes mean to know beforehand. We have to admit that as Calvinists. Sometimes it does mean to foreknow beforehand in the Bible. You can look at, we don't have time, Acts 26, verse 5, 2 Peter 3.17 if you want. Now, Arminians want us to interpret this foreknowledge in this verse, in verse 29, to mean that God is looking through history to see who will respond in faith to the gospel, and on that basis, he predestines them. But there are two problems with that interpretation. Number one, an exegetical problem, and number two, a theological problem. The exegetical problem is this. The meaning of this word, foreknow, does not mean what the Arminian says it means. Um, this passage does not say those whom God foresaw. That's what the Arminians are really saying here. The passage does not say those whom God foresaw he predestined. And also, the passage does not say for what he foreknew. It says for whom he foreknew. That is, it is, it, it is um, 
rather God's uh, personal, intimate knowledge and love of this individual that leads to the predestination of them. <clears throat> John Murray, in his commentary, says that the word know in Scripture many times means more than merely intellectual cognition. Foreknowledge means to have one's eye upon them in love, to take delight in that person, to have a particular interest in them. It is in this sense that Paul says, those whom he foreknew, meaning he foreloved you. He sets his love on his people from eternity past. God loved you before you existed, boys and girls. God knew you in his mind, and he loved you even though he had not yet created you. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 25, we read that God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew them. Uh, in Psalm 1, verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 144, verse 3, O Lord, what is man that thou dost take knowledge of him? Why do you know me, O God? Why do you love me? When I think of the vastness of your creation, and I see the billions of stars out there, who am I, O God, that you would set your love on me? Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So here again, many times the Bible speaks of this type of knowledge as a personal intimacy. <clears throat> Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, I remember many years ago, I heard Joe Moorcraft say, it's more important to be known by God than to know God. <clears throat> to be known by God means to be loved by God. And that your love is a consequence of his love for you. That's why he even said it that way. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, he says to the Galatians? Uh, because of the fact that God knows you. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2.19 says that the Lord knows those who are His. And then finally, 1 John 3.1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. So going back here to this chapter on perseverance of the saints, the Westminster Divines here are hearkening back to this golden chain of salvation, aren't they, in section 1. They're saying that you are effectually called. Why are we effectually called? Because we were predestined. Why were we predestined? Because we were known of God. Because we were loved of God. God predestined us. Why uh, then are we effectually called? Because we were predestined. And what happens after we're effectually called? He said we are sanctified by His Spirit. And that this leads ultimately to glory. So in section one, the Westminster divines are rooting our perseverance in God himself, in his grace, in what God has done from beginning to end. And therefore, we should take encouragement. It is the God who uh, for loves us 
who has predestined us. And the God who predestines us calls us. And the God who calls us justifies us. And the God who justifies us sanctifies us. And the God who sanctifies us is the God who glorifies us. And if God has done all these things for us, then nothing can be against us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Arminian theology would have us believe that the one exception to all this activity of God is when God passively looks into the future to see what man is doing. And do you want your salvation ultimately to be determined by what God in his omniscience sees you doing in the future? Because no, why? Because then it's, on, it's, it's up to what you do. If predestination is based upon what God sees, the question arises, what would God see? Well, let me tell you what God would see. He would see you dead in your sin. He would see a spiritual corpse. He would see a valley of dry bones. But what does the scripture say? The time is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Luke 15, verse 32. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Why did he begin to live? Because of the grace of God worked in his life. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, Hear that again? It's because of God's mercy, His grace, His forelove for us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Jesus Christ. So those whom God foreknew or foreloved, He has predestined them to become perseverers. <laughs> he has predestined you to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and nothing will stop you from being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you as a Christian have confidence in the midst of affliction. For we know that he has predestined even these afflictions to this end, that we would be glorified. He has predestined the means to that divine end. Because God has foreloved you from eternity past, he has decreed and elected you to become like Jesus Christ. You are predestined to be as Christ. And we can easily get caught up in this debate between predestination and election, and lose sight of the overarching argument of the apostle. Paul is asserting what? Everything works for the good of Christians. Because of the love of God and because of his calling and because of his overarching purpose, it is to make you confident in the promise to Christians, to believers, that you are to be as Christ is, glorified. Now, many people want to rebel, I know, against the doctrine of election, but that is really undercutting the pastoral help uh, that th this, these doctrines give us here. If you undermine God in his election and predestination, you are undermining one of the greatest comforts that we have to persevere. You, you are, you are um, undermining this comfort that the Apostle Paul is bringing to people who need comfort. Christians need assurance 
that everything is going ultimately to work out for their good. Because there are going to be many days when it seems that everything is against you. What do you say to a woman whose husband has just left her? What hope and strength can a Christian find when they lose a child to death? Where do believers find resolve in the face of tragedy? It is from the biblical truth and understanding that God is sovereign and decrees everything for our perseverance and conformity to Jesus. And just as no believer despises the idea of being made like Christ, we are not to despise the sovereign and predetermined plan of God for us, which will involve those sufferings. Everyone in this room has suffered or is suffering or will suffer. I guarantee it. Jesus has said that through many tribulations, we must all enter the kingdom of God. What will aid in that suffering? What will keep you going when you don't feel like going any longer? When you don't feel like persevering? When you don't feel like continuing in the faith? It is the knowledge that God has predestined you, a man of sorrows, uh, to be like Jesus, who was the great man of sorrows. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. The Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, what? Should be holy and blameless before Him. That is, we, that we will, predest, pre, that we will um, persevere. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory <coughs> excuse me, of his grace, <coughs> which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. <coughs> Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Note the comfort, though, of predestination as it talks about us persevering through difficult times. God's providence has new significance and meaning and purpose for Christians. Life is not aimless. It is not empty. It is not void. As so many since the Enlightenment have talked about or written about, one of the most depressing summers I ever had was my summer between my junior year and my senior year when I decided to sign up for the, you know where I'm going? And I decided to sign up for the AP literature class. <laughs> and I had the most miserable several weeks of reading the most vain and empty and depressing books that supposedly make up this body of so-called great literature. I mean, it was awful. It was Albert Camus. It was uh, Kurt Vonnegut, The Slaughterhouse-Five. It was, it was just all this stuff that has no, the sense of meaning in life is just not there. Uh, Camus, I think, was the worst. I mean, that guy needs Jesus. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, life is not like that in Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> We have been called 
by the work of the Spirit. The work and the application of the Holy Spirit brings new life to us. We have a new nature. We have a new readiness to believe. We have a new desire in life when it comes to believing the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are what? Readers of Camus. All you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. All of you who are taking AP literature, come unto me. And I will give you life. I will give you meaning. I will give you significance. Through it all, we see this with Lazarus. As Lazarus is raised from the dead and Saul of Tarsus is brought to new life. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, John chapter 6. In verse 44 and 45, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you can't come to Christ unless what? God is working in your life. What does that mean about you running with Christ? It means that if if you can't come to Christ unless the Spirit of God draws you to Christ, then it also means you can't continue with Christ unless the Spirit of Christ is helping you. And the Spirit of Christ is going to help you because you have been predestined. You have been effectually called. You you are foreknown of God, and therefore He will lead you to glory. The Spirit will see to it that you continue in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And then in in Romans 8.29, notice the, the Apostle Paul, going back to our text here, Romans 8, verse 29, excuse me, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So notice here, he then speaks about justification and glorification. That having uh, called us, we are also then justified. That is, we are declared righteous, not made righteous, boys and girls. We are declared righteous. That is, we are pardoned of all our sin, and we have the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And then, notice here that as Paul continues to glorification, as I said this morning, he speaks in the past tense here. Notice that he does not tell the Roman church, and he will glorify you. He doesn't say, those whom he called he justified, and those whom he justified, he will glorify. He does not say that. He says what? Those whom he called, he justified, and and these whom he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. Why does he speak in the past tense? And I think it's because he is emphasizing our glorification, though not specifically applied to us yet, it is that certain that he puts it in the past tense. That is, it's a done deal. Now, going back here to the Westminster Confession, notice what they now take up in section two. The Westminster divines say this, that this perseverance of the saints depends not on their own what? Free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy and the merit and the intercession of Jesus Christ the abiding of the Spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from 
all which ariseth also the certainty and fallibility thereof. And I know that's a mouthful. But the point is this. It's very simple. It's the same thing Paul is saying here in Romans uh, 8, verse 29 and 30. And that it is not dependent, our perseverance is not ultimately dependent upon us. It is ultimately dependent upon all the grace of God from the beginning in eternity past, all the way to our present day, and all the way into your future. It depends here, just break it down here, on what? The immutability of the decree of election. What does that mean? It means just the same thing we said this morning, that God does not change. And so if God has decreed our election in Jesus Christ to the glory of his name and for our future salvation, (coughs) then it must come to pass. It flows from the love of God, that is the foreknowledge of God, and upon the efficacy of the merit and the intercession of Jesus Christ. That is, it's from the Father, through the Son, and applied by the Spirit, the abiding of the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian character here uh, of God securing your perseverance. And then finally, in section three, section three here. <clears throat> Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan, and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, etc. Here's the warning. That is, in spite of everything I've said to you in sections 1 and 2, we also need to hear section 3, which is don't presume on the grace of God and say, well, I'll just, I'll just take a, a big spiritual nap. Uh, Or as one of my professors, Dr. Roger Nicole said, Calvinism is not the pillow of your laziness, for your laziness. (laughs) So, what did he mean by that? That is, he means here that we, while acknowledging that God is in this from beginning to end, we still have a responsibility as image bearers to do what? To use the means of grace to avoid sin. Notice what are the problems that are listed here. First, they list what? The temptation of Satan in the world. So we have to avoid temptation. What's the next thing you and I need to watch out for? Ourselves. The prevalency of corruption remaining in them. So we got to be on guard against the temptations of the world. We need to watch the inclinations of our own heart. Thirdly, the neglect of the means of their preservation. Now, how, what are the means of your preservation? Boys and girls, I've said it so many times from this pulpit. I know you know. What are the means? We call them the means of grace. Yes. It's the, it's the reading and hearing of the Word of God. It's the preaching of the Word of God. It's the administration of the sacraments and the fellowship of the saints and the prayers of the church. You know, this is why John Owen said that the, uh, the usual means of leading to apostasy is, is leaving church. That, that, that it is the forsaking of the assembly that ultimately uh, is, well, is the most common way in which somebody ends up leaving Christ himself. And so the Westminster Divines are saying, keep in the means of grace. You want to persevere? Uh, keep using the means of grace. That's why we emphasize it so much. Uh, We can fall into grievous sins for a time. Now, the true believer, of course, will always repent and 
come to faith, but we can uh, fall into sin. Uh, that, that is grievous. As, you know, you, you look at David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, it was a terrible sin. You could look at Peter's uh, public denial of Jesus Christ on the night in which he was betrayed. Terrible sin. Uh, and yet both of these men, by God's grace, came back to the Lord and, and continued to persevere. We can, it says here, grieve the Spirit. We have to be careful that we not grieve or quench the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Uh, for when we do, how do we often do that? It's through sin or the neglect of the means of grace. Uh, we lose the grace and the comforts of the Spirit. So uh, we do need to be on guard of that. It is possible for true Christians to be hardened, their consciences wounded, and to hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. So they are telling us to be careful not to allow all the good stuff that we've talked about tonight to lead you to presumption, but rather to lead you to watchfulness and prayer and thankfulness.